Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash election offer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. I'm joined today by Marcus Roberts, who is Director of International Projects at YouGov. And we're going to be looking at the latest polls in this crunch 2020 presidential election year. Since we last spoke, the polls seem to have only improved for Biden if you look at the sort of national level and among most of the leading pollsters, uh, it seems to me. However, there are little wrinkles here and there that suggest Trump is performing better than a sort of superficial glance at the polls would suggest. What's your reading of the latest? I think that's a fair characterization. In this week's YouGov national poll, we have a Biden national polling position of 49.9 versus 41.4% for President Trump. This represents a slight decrease for President Trump and a slight increase for former Vice President Biden. How that's playing out at the state level is more good news for Joe Biden, because at the moment, things are really about the Democrats playing offense, attacking more than just the states that they need to win the presidency, but the states that can add to an electoral college majority. So if we look at the CBS YouGov battleground tracker up to polling on the 20th of September, we see the following picture. In Ohio, Trump is leading by just one point, 50 to 49. But in North Carolina, Joe Biden has a three-point lead, 51 to 48. In Iowa, we have a tied race, 49-49. In Florida, a slim Biden lead, 48 to 46. In Georgia, a really interesting Biden lead of 51 to 47. And in Arizona, a Biden lead of 50 to 47. Now, what we can tell from all of this is that the national polling position, whilst impressive for Vice President Biden, isn't reflected to the same extent in the battleground states. And that is still President Trump's best hope for re-election. But the problem he has is that he's playing defense at the moment in just too many places. And at some point, he's got to A, lock down his core states, places like Iowa and Ohio, B, ensure that there's no new gains for Democrats in places like Georgia or North Carolina or let alone Texas. And then C, he's got to actually ensure that he can walk away with some wins in the Rust Belt in Michigan, in Ohio. As you remember, that was how he won the presidency the first time in 2016. And as long as he's trailing by these numbers in these states and in these national polls, he's got an uphill climb. I'm going to give you a quick arithmetic challenge. Let's say Trump holds on to the key battleground states of Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, and even Pennsylvania, but loses, say, 
Georgia and North Carolina. And let's leave Texas out of it, because I think if Trump lost Texas, that would swing it in Biden's favour. Would Trump still win through those key battleground states if he lost those other states to the Democrats, including Ohio as well? I think that it would, A, be a hugely surprising map to see a map in which Vice President Biden won the South, even as uh, Republican Donald Trump won the North. It is possible, I suggest, highly improbable. In that instance, it would really depend on whether Vice President Biden also overperformed in Arizona, whether he maintained control of Nevada and Colorado and managed to pull off Florida and North Carolina as well. In that situation, it may well come down actually to Texas, even though you took it out of this hypothetical. But the reason I would say that we shouldn't take it out of the hypothetical is because in a world in which Vice President Biden wins states like Florida and Arizona and even Georgia and North Carolina handsomely, we would expect Texas to be highly competitive for Vice President Biden. And you would actually expect Texas probably to break in a similar way, certainly to how Georgia or North Carolina were going with those kind of majorities if they were significant. So as unlikely as your scenario is, you're probably forecasting something that is what the Democrats running the campaign in 2028 or 2032 would see as a perfectly viable electoral map and what the Republicans are probably fearing in terms of the demographic progression of the Sunbelt states. Well, let's talk about Texas because, I mean, demographically, it's changing a lot. You have a, a, a growing Hispanic vote. But as we've seen, Trump is performing slightly better than he previously has with Hispanics. And then you have uh, a sort of increasingly liberal parts of Texas around Austin and so on, as well as the fact that you have a lot of people coming from California, and we don't know quite how those people shake out. You have quite a few conservatives, I think, who are fed up of living in California who are moving to Texas. But whether they're Trump voters is another question. How do you see Texas playing out this time? And I mean, do you think it's in the bank for the Democrats in four and eight years' time? Um, I don't think it's in the bank for either party in four or eight years' time at all. We'll get an early glimpse, though, of Texas's future in terms of how Arizona works out in this election cycle. If Arizona is blueifying, to, to create a terrible new word, at the same kind of rate and for the same kind of reasons that Virginia changed from being a red state to a purple state to a blue state very, very quickly, almost skipping out the purple state phase of being a key battleground altogether because of a change in the demographics, because of change particularly in socioeconomics with a large number of higher education, higher income voters moving into that state. A similar but slower effect is something to that that we're seeing in North Carolina. Then if Arizona goes that way, Democrats would be very confident about Texas. Texas itself is interesting in that this is a state that Republicans used to carry comfortably by double digits. President Trump, I believe, carried it by nine points previously. And the fact that this year uh, he's polling about five points worse in Texas, to put it conservatively, than he was four years ago, shows the growing Republican problem that Republicans have in that state. And that takes us on to the situation in the Senate as well, because I think if there are one or two real sleeper Senate races that would be a good idea to keep an eye on in this race. It would be the Texas Senate race and the Georgia, uh, and, and at least one of the two Georgia Senate races, the Ossoff one, probably. In those instances, 
while we're all staying so focused on what's happening with Susan Collins in Maine and what's happening with regard to the Senate seats that the Democrats are, the Senate seat the Democrats are expected to lose in terms of Alabama, the result of the special election circumstances a couple of years ago, I think we're not paying enough attention to what might happen if there was to be, say, a Biden landslide, a Biden blowout, down ticket in terms of some surprise Senate results, possibly even including Georgia and Texas. One factor that I've seen reported this week, Politico did a big piece on it, is the idea, they didn't use this word in Politico, but it's a word we use in Britain, is the idea of a youth quake and that Biden might be able to bring out young voters to similar levels as Barack Obama was able to do in 2008. Do you see any evidence of that? It seems to me surprising. I wouldn't have thought Biden would excite young voters, although I can see that Black Lives Matter moment and a general sort of hatred of Trump among young people are strong motivating factors. Well, the Harvard Kennedy poll is what people are pretty excited about this week in terms of looking at the voting intention and attitudes of 18 to 29-year-olds. And that's because Harvard have run this poll at different cycles, and they're showing this time in this cycle a level of young voter enthusiasm for Joe Biden higher than it was for Hillary Clinton and closer to the kind of enthusiasm numbers that candidate Barack Obama was able to achieve in 2008. And beyond that, we're seeing a level of voting intention support uh, amongst young voters that is, again, closer to the 2008 number than it was the 2016 number. And in this, it won't surprise um, listeners to know, the whole Biden strategy rests. How can the Biden campaign make the electorate look as much like it did in 2008, a year the Democrats did extremely well in, than 2016, a year in which democratic hopes were shattered. And part of that equation is driving up voter enthusiasm for candidates amongst young voters and driving up their intention to vote. If those things happen, and it looks from this impressive poll that Harvard have done, that that is the case, then Democrats have more reasons to feel confident than not about achieving a significant improvement in young voter turnout over 2016. Has the Biden campaign been more canny on social media outreach than people give it credit for, perhaps? I mean, I know that, you know, whereas Clinton's campaign focused very heavily on big celebrities, you know, the Beyonce's and the Jay-Z's to try and excite young people, Biden seems to be appealing to influencers, people I probably haven't heard of, but are quite a big deal for young people. And perhaps are they being slightly more subtle and effective than Hillary Clinton was in 2016? Well, I think one of the big reasons why the Biden campaign has been able to be more successful with young voters is less to do with strategy and more to do with events. The way in which the Black Lives Matter movement has electrified politics for a generation more interested and engaged with diversity and inclusiveness in terms of frontline politics than previously was the case. The way in which the coronavirus has exposed some of the weaknesses of President Trump's administration in very stark terms, in terms of handling of the pandemic. This has made for a rich political environment for the Biden campaign to generate some classic opposition politics against an incumbent government. The Clinton campaign also had the problem of being effectively the incumbent government, and it's very difficult, as any strategist or bolster would tell you, to rev up high levels of youth turnout for an incumbent government's re-election campaign. Uh, So it has those advantages as well. But beyond that, the Biden campaign has also just had this massive strategic advantage 
in terms of, of, of cash. Uh, cash on hand, extraordinary donation levels. In August, the Biden campaign shattered all fundraising uh, records with over $360 million raised. And whilst everyone has got rightly very engaged and in some cases quite excited about the Supreme Court fight following the tragic death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's very telling that all of the stories of the online fundraising success have come from the Democrats. Act Blue, the collective campaign organization for Democratic congressional gains, registering nearly $20 million in a uh, 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 course of, of 24 hours. Other Senate, individual Senate campaigns, each posting over a million dollars raised um, in the immediate aftermath of the justices' uh, death announcement. Normally, these kind of energies uh, associated with a Supreme Court opening are associated more with the right than with the left. But again, that kind of plays into the politics in which the Biden campaign has been able to tap into existing sources of energy, including and especially amongst young voters willing and wishing to make a protest and make their protest known. And they're giving them that opportunity in the form of this election. That's very interesting. I wonder also if the Democrats choose to get into a, a sort of culture wars, almost Brett Kavanaugh style fight over um, the next Supreme Court nominee, quite likely Amy Coney Barrett. Could they not energise the right uh, and end up sort of fundraising for Donald Trump by mistake? That's a possible risk. And I think that that's one of the reasons why you've seen Vice President Biden himself and his campaign avoiding the culture war aspects of this judicial fight. And instead, their argument has been about coronavirus. It's been about healthcare. It's been about um, how the Supreme Court's imminent judgments on the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, um, could affect voters and their real lives with regard to their health insurance, with regard to the provision under the Affordable Care Act of health insurance, regardless of pre-existing conditions. These are really important bread and butter kitchen table politics associated with voters and the Supreme Court. And it's really telling to me that that's the ground that the Biden campaign is choosing to make its Supreme Court based arguments on. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, the Trump campaign suddenly are starved of cash because all of last year uh, and certainly at the beginning of this year, all we heard was this sort of huge arsenal of funding that they had accumulated because they've been running such a long re-election campaign. They've been uh, they built a sort of Death Star, as Brad Pascali called it, and yet they seem to have fired the Death Star. And uh, so far, it's it's coming up well, looks to be fairly blank. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like uh, they fired the Kyber crystal fueled lasers of the Death Star super laser, and it actually imploded and blew up the ship. What Brad Parscale did in terms of misspending is the kind of thing of which I imagine entire books will be written about after this campaign, regardless of, of, of the election's outcome, because the Trump campaign's gigantic cash on hand advantage was eaten away with the kind of internal spending that was quite frankly irresponsible. One of the clearest indications of that was the amount of money that the Trump campaign was spending on raising money. Normally, you'd expect that to be a few cents on the dollar, meaning you've got to spend a few cents for every dollar that you were raising. But what under par scale they were doing was spending more like a couple of quarters. In other words, for every dollar that they were earning, they're having to spend nearly 50 cents in order to make that dollar back. 
that is an extraordinarily bad rate of return for a campaign. And that's indicative to me and to other campaign professionals that this was not a campaign that had a strong grip on sound financial management. And that's probably explains how they've ended up in this rather bad situation in which they tried to aim, point and fire the Death Star only to have it implode upon them. Lastly, I'd like to ask you about uh, your former colleague, Freddie Sayers, had an interesting post on Unheard. And the t- headline of it, is this the question that will win it for Biden? And the question was, politically, the thing I'd like most is for everyone to calm down. And there was a large majority, uh, actually not that large, I didn't think, but 51% said strongly agree, 33% said mildly agree. Is it the case that Joe Biden's strongest argument is not that he's a particularly good candidate, but just that the world might calm down a bit if he were president? Oh, I think without question. Who'd have thought in the year 2020, the Taylor Swift, you need to calm down, candidate of this election would be Joe Biden. And yet it is. What Joe Biden is doing is pursuing a politics of reassurance. This is a politics and a political playbook, by the way, that will be very familiar to British listeners watching the slow rise of Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party. It's aimed at telling voters that the economy, that family, that the nation, that security, that health is safe in the opposition left-wing party's hands once again. It's about competence and it's about quiet effectiveness, calming down passions, even in the face of media grabbing populist politicians as successful as Donald Trump or Boris Johnson. It's a different kind of politics that I think that Freddie has accurately and effectively touched on in terms of the you need to calm down question. And if it is successful for Vice President Biden this November, I think we'll see more reassurance and competence-based politics rising to prominence across left-wing politicians globally as well. We may or we may not speak again before the first presidential debate, which is on the 29th of September. But I'd just like to ask you, how you think that the polls will might change if, let's say, Biden has a serious mental failure? How important can polls be? I, I think last time you suggested that you think this one could be very important, but that also polls often don't really matter at all. Uh, sorry, debates don't really matter at all. I think after 2016, the jury is a little bit out on the true importance of debates to election results. They certainly have an effect upon polls in the short term. And that was because per all of the polling, Hillary Clinton went three for three in her presidential debates against then-candidate Trump. And yet, ultimately, of course, the result was the result. So I'm a little more sceptical these days than I previously was about the marquee importance of the debates. What I can say is the debates are an opportunity for candidates to lose voters. It's much harder for them to use a debate to win support than it is for them to use a debate to lose support. And some of the signs that we've seen with regard to how seriously or perhaps rather how unseriously President Trump seems to be taking his debate prep, don't exactly inspire confidence if you're a Republican hoping for a strong performance by the president. This is very common for a president seeking re-election with regard to debates. They never seem to give the first debate, certainly, as much attention and as much preparation as it requires. Uh, you'll be, remember, uh, 
ready how this played out in, in 2012 for then President Obama facing candidate Mitt Romney. He said that he just was simply too busy running the country and being president to prepare properly and didn't like the tone or style of some of his practice sessions and his interrogators at that time. And as a consequence, he came to the, the first debate against candidate Romney woefully unprepared and suffered accordingly. Now, he made it back with strong performances in the second and third debates, but I think it can be difficult for, for sitting presidents to prepare properly for uh, their re-election debates, and that's why historically they've often stumbled at the beginning. I am going to ask another question, because something we haven't really touched on is the Senate race, which takes on increasing importance with the news of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and the possibility that Trump will try and get a replacement in before the election or the inauguration. I think it looks, from a sort of superficial glance, as though the Democrats have a good shot at taking the Senate and therefore having a clean sweep, which would mean they can make good on their threat to either pack the court if they feel the Supreme Court is against them, or even make more substantial changes to the way in which the Constitution works. Is that your reading of how the Senate races are looking? That Democrats ha are more likely than not to win control of the Senate. But remember, they need to win four seats, not just three, because it's very likely that Democrats are going to lose control of the Alabama seat that they won under special circumstances a couple of years ago. And given the need to win four, it can be a tough reach. But let's say that they pull it off. And let's say you end up with Vice President Kamala Harris able to cast the tie-breaking vote to make Chuck Schumer the majority leader. In that situation, I think it is probably more likely than not that Democrats move to abolish the filibuster and allow Vice President Biden to move his legislative agenda through the Senate, much like you would move it through the House. But the problem with adding additional justices to the Supreme Court is that he would require, A, a willingness to do it himself, and Joe Biden being an institutionalist is probably one of the more reluctant players in this drama with regard to that. He's not like Pete Buttigieg. He's not like Elizabeth Warren, candidates who were far more open to that agenda. He's more of a, a small-c conservative when it comes to his love for the existing and old ways of the Senate. He would also need to deliver all 50 senators in the Democratic caucus for that position. And that would require uh, delivering other old institutionalists like Dianne Feinstein, who's expressed some concern about ending the filibuster, probably could be persuaded to do it. I'm not sure she could be persuaded on the court expansion plan. You also need, need West Virginia's Joe Manchin, a Democrat who I think it would be something of a new development, we say, uh, were he to embrace a court expansion politics. He's, he's, so, he's what's known as a blue dog Democrat. He, the lot, perhaps the last of the... the blue dogs, the Democrats that hold very red seats in the national legislature. It is well possible to imagine a Democratic Senate with four pickups. It is quite probable if Republicans are obstructive, that you'll see the end of the legislative filibuster. I still think that the idea of expansion of the court, even in the event of a Democratic Senate majority, is more unlikely rather than likely. But a lot of that will depend on just how bad and dirty the politics get and how much anger over the Supreme Court fight 
there is in the in the weeks and months to come. What about new states? Do you think a democratic Senate could um, introduce new states, Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., North and South California? There's a lot of enthusiasm amongst the democratic grassroots at the moment, and certainly across the left of the party for looking at this agenda, including new states, probably less likely on the California front, more likely with regard to the Washington District of Columbia and Puerto Rico itself. Although we shouldn't necessarily assume at all that Puerto Rico would necessarily prove to be a democratic state. Its politics are more complicated than that. What the Biden campaign may well be considering, though, in this, in this respect, is a bigger constitutional politics. What kind of constitutional argument does the Biden campaign want to make about modernizing America's institutions and structures for the 21st century? That takes it out of a defensive political crouch and into a a more visionary, principled-based position that's probably more attractive. And there is a strong political as well as moral argument for this, which is that the U.S. Senate, as it's currently comprised, has a strong Republican majority predicated on Republicans representing tens of millions of Americans fewer than Democrats represent because of the nature of two senators, regardless of population per state. Add to that the fact how very rarely Republicans win the national popular vote. I think for the presidency, I think it's quite likely that a Biden administration or a Biden campaign pursuing a bigger constitutional politics also make a push for ending the Electoral College and switching to a popular vote, which would have marked implications for the Republicans' abilities to win the presidency based on their current electoral coalitions and politics. So I think all of this is more likely to be the beginnings of a bigger argument of the politics and of, of the Constitution in the US rather than the end of it. As always in American politics, it will be fascinating to watch. And Marcus, thank you very much for joining us today. 